Randy Brecker, the Grammy Award-winning American jazz trumpeter, flugelhornet and composer, is our special guest on this episode of Music Matters with Daryl Craig Harris. Randy Brecker, how are you doing today? Well, I woke up feeling pretty good, actually. So, so far, so good. Yeah, exactly. Every, every day you wake up is a good day. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I'm here. I know. Yeah, I hear you. But um, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, uh, so you're actually in New York, but you're in the, you said, mentioned you're in the Hamptons. Yeah, I'm about two hours plus out of the city and have been for about 11, full time, about 11 years. Awesome. Yeah. New York City, it seems to be tough these days. I mean, it's it's always been not so easy to make a living, but I know they've had challenges. Um, and then we've had obviously just dealt with all the COVID stuff. So um, how, what have you been doing during that period? Have you been recording? Have you been writing or what have you been up to? Well, I haven't been writing much these days. I don't know. Maybe I'll feel like it uh, as time moves on. But I have done a lot of recording uh, for other people. Ah, okay. uh, along with my wife, who is a wonderful Pro Tools engineer and editor. We just have a good process going uh, that people, I guess, found out about. And we get calls all the time to either record and she does some of the arrangements. Awesome. Uh, and uh, gee, I, I, Cal, we must have done between around 250, 300 sessions throughout the years. Uh, Great. Downstairs in our small studio but it works really really well we just did uh three tracks for a gentleman a fine trombonist named eric eric golitz uh last week with featuring a lot of new york uh a a musicians uh and i did all my parts at our studio and it worked awesome. out really well yeah it seems to be like that's the, the sort of the new normal even even before covid that's become because then you don't have to travel into the city right you can you can kind of control yeah. you can control your environment and that's awesome that your wife um is a pro tools uh person and i so when, when did you first set up a, a home studio like that to get to prepare to do that kind of thing well that's a good question probably i suppose about 15 years ago when we uh, when we had the apartment in new york uh, we uh, set up in our living room, which was a corner apartment, and it was a pre-war apartment, so it was heavily kind of fortified. Right. And uh, the sound was good there, too. So we uh, did a, quite a bit of recording uh, back then, too, uh, uh, you know, the last decade. And we moved, like I said, out here 11 years, and it's more of an official studio. We have a piano, a set of drums down mm -hmm. there, and... Uh, yeah, more so space. A little, yeah, a little more space, and it's a and brought some outboard equipment, and it works really well. We get a really good sound too, so I think word spread around. So we're always pretty busy with that. Yeah, of course, in COVID, haven't been doing very few live gigs. In fact, in in uh, it's starting up again in August for me. Anyway, I'm happy to say, but I think this whole year and a half, I've played in front of people and limited amounts of people maybe twice. Mm -hmm. I went out to Aspen, did a couple shows uh, about a year ago. And about uh, in April, I flew out to Cincinnati and there's a very nice club out there. Uh, played two nights at, uh, at that club in front of uh, limited capacity. I think it was 25%. Right. Yeah. Uh, and 
the rest have just been home, you know. Yeah, a couple, it's, it's, couple it's, Zoom kind of stuff we set up with music and some some uh, things for educational events, playing and talking, some workshops. Yeah, that's, do you uh, do you like teaching? Is that something that you've you found a passion for, or how, how is that for you? Yeah, well, I've been doing a lot of workshops in, in that respect. I don't really teach one-on-one. Or right, you're doing more like clinic but kind of workshops. It's kind of generalized clinic, what I practice, how to practice, mm-hmm. more uh, set to jazz playing, swinging, and imp- imp- improvising. Some has to do with my writing process, right? things like that. And it's always usually people asking questions. I also did one recently. Uh, really more of a presentation for the ITG, International Trumpet Guild, where there weren't, it was filmed ahead of time. So I spent an hour and a half just talking into my computer and we did some (laughs) musical examples, but that's a little harder to do. It really helps. Yeah, like it's nice to have an audience that that bounce off. Yeah, you need the interaction. You know, interaction is the name of the game on a lot of these things. So it'll take my mind to a place it hasn't been. But that came out pretty good, too, I think. You know, I've had a lot of experience by now on Zoom and doing these kinds of things. Right. Uh, which is, uh, I'll always have with me now. Yeah. So. Uh, I think I think the great thing with the Zoom and what I found even doing the podcast is it basically opens you up to an international, you know, audience and you can reach. Sure. It's just a whole different animal, right? And now, now because of the internet, everything's so global, I guess, for, for better or for worse, <laughs> depending on your perspective. But yeah. um, so actually you mentioned your writing process and I mean, you're actually a very prolific writer and, and with all your albums with your brother, um, that's, those are kind of hollowed ground for many, many musicians, including myself. Um, t- tell me about your writing process. Is it something that you do alone? Is it, are you into collaborating a lot? What's that for you? How does that work? Well, when I was doing it a lot, it was something uh, 99% of the time doing it alone although we did have some success jamming up some tunes i could tell you about that one because that sure. the one we jammed up became our biggest hit sneaking up behind you okay which awesome. was really uh, uh somewhat of a long story but i had written back in 1974 sounds like uh, many years ago <laughs> many decades ago <laughs> I, yeah i had had this crazy idea to want to record to write stuff for specific friends. A lot of pieces fell into place. I had been playing with Billy Cobham's man right. for years and uh, wanted to establish my own uh, identity as a, as, a, as a composer and arranger. Sure. Uh, and one by one, all the musicians who I wanted to use were around Dave Sanborn, who I had met when I was 15 at band camp. My brother, Mike Brecker, moved to town David moved from Woodstock to New York. Don Grolnick, who I also met uh, originally at the Stan Kenton Band Camp, same place where I met Dave. Strangely enough, we were yeah. all 15 years old. Imagine that. Yeah, what a group. <laughs> yeah. Will Lee had been in New York, who I called when he was 17 to join the band Dreams. He awesome. was around. Uh, Steve Kahn, Bob Mann on guitar. I had been playing with quite a bit. Uh, I was I was friends with Harvey Mason and uh, Chris Parker. They both played right. on the first record. So I started to write with those people in mind uh, over the course of maybe a year and a half. And it was pretty piecemeal, a lot of the tunes, particularly some skunk funk. 
where every bar was pretty much a different instrument. It was like putting a giant puzzle together. That right. Yeah. My, being being the, my, the mix master. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I only had two cassette players and I'd record on one and then overdub on another ping uh, pong with tracks yeah, yeah. back and forth if I wanted to hear them. Fun. Basically sitting alone at a keyboard, I was pretty adept at playing everything I wrote. And lo and behold, it all kind of uh, fell together throughout the months. I had nine tunes pretty much written like that. I was very assiduous in marking the cassettes, that old word cassette, (laughs) what was on there. I was pretty organized. Yeah, but, but you're but you're you're on the cutting edge of that too because you were you're actually you know making the best use of what the technology we had, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eventually, I got a four track the first time we eventually went to Japan a couple of times, right? A couple of years later, but basically that's how it was done. And I tried to translate some things that ha- happened to me uh, into music, like Horace Silver did when I was playing with him. Right. A lot of his music was really based on experiences and. I was young and single and out on the town, and I tried to go out and hear music yeah. every night to get inspiration, and I'd come home and Plus, write. you're here in the city. You're surrounded by all these great players, these great clubs, right? There's so much happening. Yeah, so yeah. so it, it was really an exciting time. Mm-hmm. And luckily, lo and behold, we eventually uh, got signed by Clive Davis, who was starting a new label called Arista. Right. But the caveat was, and this threw me for a loop, I've talked about this before, he sent uh, a guy named Steve Backer to one of the rehearsals. Uh, It was a smaller world. People had heard about these rehearsals that were taking place in in basically in Will or Don's apartment. They lived in the same building. We'd get together every week and rehearse. And I guess the guys were talking about it and the word spread out and somehow this gentleman steve becker who had signed a production deal with this new label run by clive davis called arista Hmm. came to the rehearsal or called me up Uh, i think he actually came to the rehearsal after calling me and uh, wanted to sign uh me or the band right forget how he put it i think he uh, was really really uh he wanted to record the music I've been writing. I think that's how right. I, I got you. But the caveat was Clive wanted us to call the band, the Brecker brothers. Ah, okay. A, a brilliant idea on Clive. Clive was, yeah, really, he's a marketing uh, genius. Yep. <laughs> this guy always had uh, wonderful ideas, but at the time, since I had written all the music, Mike and Sanborn really were in a phase where they were just practicing all day. Right. They hadn't uh, written anything. It was really my whole concept. I put the band together. How much? How much uh, younger was your brother? Because I know he was he was younger. Uh, he's about was about three and a half years younger. Okay, gotcha. Sanborn and I. Sanborn's about eight or nine months older. Oh, okay, gotcha. So we're all within range. Right, yeah, yeah. A lot, <laughs> a lot but you're still the big brother. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, I duly protested at first since I, I said, look, I wanted this to be a Randy Brecker solo record. I thought that was the whole idea. Right. And uh, uh, it'll look funny, too, because Sanborn's in the front line and it'll look funny uh, rec- calling it Brecker Brothers. He'll look <laughs> like the long lost cousin. That was yeah. my argument. <laughs> Didn't go very far with Clive or, or Steve Backer. So, yeah. They thought of the name. I yeah. said, okay. I thought about it for a week. 
Yeah. Clive, Clive was, you know, I mean, the thing with him, his track record, it's like, it's hard to argue with that, right? Yeah. You can't, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to argue with him, period. Hey, well, he yeah, wonder, exactly. <laughs> he was a wonderful man, though, with just brilliant. Yeah. So we went in, and that's, we went in to a small studio called Secret Sound, which was owned by Todd Rundgren, who was from Philly. Right. And uh, uh, I didn't know him yet, but it was run by a, late great friend Moogie Klingman who played in, in, in Todd's band and we got a good engineer Jerry Block whose father had played with Charlie Parker wow. uh, so he was very jazz influenced just a great engineer and all the like I said the force was with us all the pieces fell into place and we easily recorded the nine tunes because we had we were experienced studio cats, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Even uh, though you guys were young, you all had a, a quite a already yeah, we, quite a resume. We knew, <laughs> we knew how to put uh, those kind of records together. We knew the mm -hmm. technique, building from the bottom up, and right. double tracking the horns, all the little tricks, which I had learned from playing in other groups like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and doing a million sessions. Sure. To see how they did it, and Steve Backer was thrilled. He'd never worked with. He was used to doing kind of. Uh, what you know like i don't know what we're going to play what do you want to play kind of <laughs> jazz dates right kind of jam session we just went in and took care of business and yeah. recorded the nine tunes that came out great and i was called to clive's uh office where he exclaimed that the music was just fantastic he loves it but and when you hear the but from <laughs> like uh -oh. clive, you know something's coming yeah said you guys need a single and I duly protested once again. I said, look, first of all, you're calling it the Brecker Brothers. Second of all, I wanted it to be all my own music. Right. And uh, we don't have a single. <laughs> and in his own way, you know, he stuck to his guns basically in a very nice way. But this is what he meant. If you don't do a single, it ain't coming out. Uh, so uh, Got to get it on the radio. <laughs> Got to get it on the radio. So I, I mentioned this before. I trudged back to our uh, our place of rehearsal. Everybody was there, and I explained the situation. And once again, the force was really with us that day because within about three or four hours, I still have the cassette. Everybody just had ideas, you know, mm -hmm. and this was really, truly a band endeavor. Right, collaborative, yeah. Yeah, collaborative to the nth degree. I remember Grolnick started it out with playing on the keyboards a lick that Mike and I said I play all the we play all the time when we were jamming because we did do a lot of jamming at the uh, at the uh, space too. Sure. And within about four hours, we had a tune called "Sneaking Up Behind You." Hmm. Will put on some uh, had thought of the lyrics and a and a kind of B section. Yeah. Gronick had thought of the Steve had thought up some great con some great guitar parts. And uh, Chris Parker was the disco king drummer in New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, got the. So it, it all fell together, and we went in. And Clive came to the session. Thankfully, loved it. We went in, I think, the next day, hmm. and recorded it. And that's what really sold the record. Clive loved. He he uh, inserted a couple brilliant ideas. Once again, he was always right, but it was about not we i think we had changed the the horn melody and the fade and he made us keep the original melody it was right. a couple good ideas but he loved the tune and it became number two on the uh r&b charts which Shout is out. a 
big deal when you're coming out of your first record. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a big deal. The yeah. record shot up the top 200. I couldn't believe it. We, none of us could believe it. We'd yeah. get Billboard every week, you know, go through. Yeah, it's exciting, it's exciting through, right? <laughs> and never in our wildest dreams, I'd figured the record would, you know, sell like a, most jazz or, or even funky jazz do the five or 10,000 records. The right. next thing you get, some, know, you get some, you get some tour dates. And <laughs> yeah. Next thing you know, we're opening for parliament, funkadelic, Chaka Khan and the record sold uh, 200,000 and right. still going up the charts. And still, the, uh, still selling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, it's amazing actually. Yeah, it is yeah. off the one hit, man. We are, we based our career off that, but, Sadly, we spent the next five or six records trying to recreate another. Right. We had we had some success with uh, with East River, particularly in Europe, but it became kind of a brand, uh, and the records also sold really well. Yeah. Eventually, Sanborn found his footing. I think partially from watching how that worked and yeah and you can you can hear the influence in his music too like where oh yeah it's in a really sweet place between jazz funk soul like that's a really and that's a and that's a fun place to be he's got a lot of freedom right especially back then it was uh the that music was accepted by the public so you saw a lot of those records chick korea stanley clark john mclaughlin uh you know every 10 or so records in the top 200 george duke were were instrumental kind of uh uh fusion as they called it before it became a dirty word right uh, uh it was accepted and uh was the disco year so it was a, a exciting time particularly for us studio cats yeah most well, of what was your feeling about guys like herb albert who who i mean that was sort of a in a different idiom, I guess, but but, yeah. he, but he kind of opened the world for that too for like the, oh, the trumpet he sure thing did. And, yeah yeah he uh heard this music in his head and uh uh mel lewis always tell the story uh he knew herb early on and when herb was in new york right and herb would go to union day uh which is where all the musicians go to try to get gigs for the week all the uh the 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 union hang (laughs) yeah and there'd be guys with megaphones i need a trumpet for lesson larry elgar thursday (laughs) uh, night and uh yeah he was there with his charts trying to talk musicians like Mel Lewis into playing on the records. Right. Mel told me that story himself, but Mel didn't want to, uh, thought it was out of his, uh, uh, comfort zone, so to speak. But yeah. Herb, look, what can you say, man? Besides the fact that he, uh, got instrumental music popular, uh, before the public, he, uh, with his success, He's just become a wonderful philanthropist. Yeah. Has put millions of dollars of music, uh, of his money back into music and, and, and uh, yeah, education. But, just know, a wonderful guy. A brilliant, and, brilliant business guy. And just, uh, he's helped. I mean, how many people has that guy helped? It's amazing. No, it's, uh, I was lucky enough to meet him under strange circumstances back, I don't know, the year. I would say it's the, uh, early 80s i had come back from japan with my then wife iliani elias we stopped off in uh in in hawaii as you would do coming back because right, yeah. you, you didn't have to pay for the stop you could get off the plane that's actually a really days. good flight <laughs> yeah i like that flight. and we kind of wanted to be alone we checked into a hotel because we've been in japan for a couple of weeks and i 
and I swim out to this uh, kind of uh, <clears throat> about 50 yards. There was a, uh, a float, like a wooden float where you could climb up the ladder and just kind of sit there. And there was another guy on the other, of the, of the other side of the float. And I looked around and sure enough, it was Herb. And I had, we had <laughs> never met. Yeah. So I introduced myself and he knew my work, oh, yeah, of course, course. Knew his, and his family was there. So we, uh, I'm sure he didn't want to see anyone else either, but, uh, uh, you know, we had them over and he played some stuff we've been working on and he just was a sweet guy. His yeah. whole family. Were, were it's kind of nice when you meet people like that to actually be outside of the music environment yeah. because yeah. in a way you kind of get the more real <laughs> person when you meet them yeah, at, a, true, at, true. at a, a music event or those kind of things it's like you know they got their people and you know that i'm sure you know that story but um tell me about so, I, i'm sorry go ahead let me no let so it, it became a nice relationship in fact he at one point funded uh, a michael brecker uh competition in israel among oh, other things awesome. uh, after mike mike passed away just a beautiful guy right oh yeah have good things to say about him yeah that's great yeah you know in the music business unfortunately that that seems to be kind of rare when, when you have a guy that's just he's just a good dude and yeah. like you said helping people and making especially with kids that's that's something that's close to my heart too um tell me about i know you're from philly right you grew up in philly what, right, how, yeah. how did that influence i mean to me like i hear your music and i can hear that influence in your sound from yeah. the sort of the philly vibe like how was that for you when you were growing up well, like you say, there was, uh, and it's interesting, I could talk about it for hours because at one point I kind of researched not only the jazz tradition, which everyone knows, but just the uh, the pop tradition too, yep. uh, and soul tradition, which was just as uh, important to American music and certainly was to me. I grew up in the best of circumstances, hearing many different styles of music. The city of brotherly love was also the city of melting pot, yeah. melting pot of different music. Uh, it was, uh, 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 and it was a, like a perfect storm of, of marketing and ahead of its time too, I might add. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly all jazz musicians. That's the other thing that people don't realize. Uh, there was a label called cameo parkway mm -hmm. that had all many hits. The biggest one, I guess that everyone could relate to was chubby checker and the twist. Right. And in a way, I just recently saw the Motown uh, a couple of times. It's a few years old, the documentary, how uh, Barry Gordy had worked for General Motors or one of the the, the uh, car companies mm -hmm. in the assembly line and set up Motown as an assembly line for artists. So each they had to go right. through. They had a whole machine set up. Yep. Yeah. And, and this was really the same thing in uh and and cameo parkway the guys who put that together there was uh you know a room where they thought about new dances for instance all well, you notice a lot of dances came out of right. philly well, yeah, that wasn't by accident. smart yeah smart yeah they had a uh, let's write a tune and call it uh you know the <laughs> hucklebuck or do uh, right. uh, the bunny hop or the mashed potato yeah all that stuff came out of philly and so they like uh, started a whole that wasn't only music it was starting a whole pop trend yeah, I mean, actually, people dancing, not touching each other, like the twist. <laughs> right. That was huge. And also was connected. Uh, I don't know the exact details, but they were all jazz musicians. Hmm. Dick Clark had American Bandstand on right. TV, and they were kind of hooked up together. I don't know if it was official contract, but he uh, 
Dick Clark was a jazz fan, but also loved soul music and R&B. Yeah. So we would have a lot of the groups from Cameo Parkway on the TV show. So I mean, the thing really, about Dick Clark, too, is like, you know, people think of him as the pop guy and whatever. But like, you know, that's back when there was only a few channels on TV. So when yeah. you had Dick Clark or you had Ed Sullivan, half the country is watching that show. Yeah. <laughs> it's and hence the they, Beatles, right? <laughs> so. Yep. And they just built it and they out, from out that grew uh, Gamble and Huff and right. Philly International and mother, sister, brother, father, brother, and the band and all the musicians were all jazz guys that right. uh, I could, knew was. Uh, they could they read. Could, and, yeah. Yeah. They read what they were the best musicians in town that could play whatever you put in front of them. So it's a very similar story. To Motown, I always mention this. It was a great. I knew all these guys as jazz musicians because, apparently, for fun, a lot of them would get together on Sunday afternoon down in South Philly, and just play. Guys probably don't know these names, but a tenor player named Buddy Sabbat, hmm. who uh, played all the funky tenor solos on all those records. John Bonney, yeah, wrote wonderful altoist, and most importantly was. Uh, guy named Jimmy Wisner, great piano player who put jazz records out with his wife, Norman, Norma Mendoza. These are all the names. I knew them as jazz musicians. I didn't realize they were all part they of it. planted all these hits, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went to Buddy Sabbath's website. He sadly passed away when he was like 52 or so. Mm. But it says, the most listened to saxophonist in the world. And I thought, maybe what? This guy I used to hear... Sunday afternoons, the mo and sure enough, he's the saxophonist on all those records. Yeah. And uh, there's another guy named Vince Montana, a wonderful bebop vibist. And he started the South Soul Orchestra, which also had many hits and had all these same guys on. Right. They, they were heavy disco records. Yeah. But, but that, with that, a slant. And you know, the thing is, those guys, were they were working musicians, right? They're doing the sessions. but they're Yeah, they were the doing great. Yeah. So, uh Quite an interesting history, and as, as I said, that developed into Gamble and Huff, and Ben started work, working for them, and they just had a lot of success. Also, using local talent right. as as the stars, they'd find guys that uh, Frankie Avalon was a trumpet yeah. player. I played I played with Frankie for a long time. <laughs> you did, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been people don't realize with him, he's been working since he was a kid. He was like nine years yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, I recently saw a. a uh, uh, an uh, edition of the honeymooners yep. you probably know this and he appears on one of them he's yeah. like 12 yeah. and plays beautiful trumpet solo he could really play yeah and grew up with a friend of mine uh Lou Dubakin, i guess they went to school together yeah frankie grew a up in a house house full of kids in a tiny house in, in philly you know that was the fabian story all these guys that came out it's, i mean it's yeah. amazing the philly story is amazing yeah it There's is bobby so rydell yeah i, I played with bobby you know so, uh, bobby so ritarelli yep. yeah i actually backed him up too down in uh wildwood that's a fun summer. show <laughs> yeah he always came with his mother to the gig oh okay yeah yeah and uh, yeah uh, so that the Philly thing was fascinating and I got to play. That's the main thing. All these different styles of music. When I started to work when I was 15 or 16, right. Played with some of the jazz guys, Billy Root, great tenor mm -hmm. saxophonist, Barrett, and an octet, Clarence C sharp. Let me, let me sit in all the time. So I started to work around town with Lou Tobacco. And it was a little older. There was a Philadelphia youth band led by Jimmy mm -hmm. DePriest. Awesome. Was a drummer who became a conductor, James DePriest. Right. Yep. Uh, so I uh, and plus uh, there was just so much music around to hear. Mm. My father, being a musician, first would take me all the time to uh, 
the clubs. There were there was Pep's uh, showboat right across the street from each other, and in uh, Red Hill, New Jersey, that's probably the place we went the most. Uh, yeah. Was the Red Hill Inn where I heard Maynard and Miles and just uh, yeah all these other guys uh, yeah and, and I mean the Philly thing is great too because you weren't that far from New York right you were you're, you could kind of go back yeah, and, and forth and, and plus we went back and forth he would take me into as I got a little older to hear Miles in New York at the at the five spot yeah. and it was just a great way to grow up yeah it's a magic and that's we, kind of a magic time right and plus there were jam sessions at the house with his friends and he had some really good musical friends, uh, uh, a wonderful trumpet player who had a career and, and moved to Detroit, Bobby Mojica. Hmm. Could re- these guys could really play. So I yeah. grew up listening to guys who really knew how to play. Remember one weekend, the great John Hendricks came over and stayed for the weekend. He was snowed in in Philly, and he was part of the jam session. He sang, and I yeah. kind of played behind him. I was around 12 years old, thrilled. Yeah, out yeah. of my mind and it's a funny story <laughs> I heard him uh, 50, 60 years later when he was in his 80s and wow. I'd seen him a couple times we had talked but this was at the Blue Note and I went to his dressing room his uh, wife Judith was there and she had been at her house when I was 12 years old he said oh yeah sure do you still have that tape that was history you actually remember that my <laughs> wow. father recorded it said you got to find that that's history uh, so what a what a guy so yeah. i mean i i always say uh with this kind of background i should really play better than i do because i was really around <laughs> i think you've done shit, it. you've so done okay <laughs> well i'm trying but you know i the, everyone really takes music seriously in philly yeah the listeners and the musicians and particularly the listeners the listeners they yeah. know what they they want to hear and uh you know you gotta well that you forces you to up i mean it's like the new york thing it forces you to up your game right because like if you yeah, if you want to stand precisely. out and work you gotta you gotta like get better quick <laughs> you know that's true yeah and um, luckily I had good teachers and things you know kind of fell into place and good influences yeah working working with your brother when did you guys first start doing that was it just from the time you were really young did you guys used to jam together how, how did that well, it's interesting. It happened really officially later than people would assume because of the age difference and the fact that Mike wasn't that serious about music when he was younger. He, I started on trumpet when I was eight and studied with Sigmund Herring from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Wow. Yeah. In the suburban Philly, they didn't have much of a music department. They only had clarinets or trumpets. And Dad having you know, going to hear Clifford every night. Clifford was the talk of the town. Right. He had all Clifford's records. And once he grabbed me saying, Trumpet's the greatest jazz instrument. He was listening to Clifford, <laughs> grabbed my arm, almost pulled it off. Uh, and conversely, Mike didn't want to play the same instrument as I did. So in a way, as he put it, he got stuck with the clarinet, which he studied <laughs> assiduously for six years with Leon Lester from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Right. But he never really took to the instrument, but he was getting a really good foundation from what I've heard. And, yeah. and he agrees that clarinet out of all the woodwinds by far the most difficult. So if you can gain some chops on yeah, you clarinet, know, I, when you hear Pete, guys foundation. like, right, you hear guys like Pete Fountain way back when, right? I mean, who just got a beautiful sound. Then you really, you really, because right. I would say if they like clarinet, I'm like, eh, but then you hear that, you're like, wow. You know, and you focus on tone and, and learning how to read. I, I'm sure that oh, was yeah. great for him. You know, 
And it was, but still music was uh, not as important to him at that point in time. He loved playing basketball, and he, I think first in line was his chemistry set. He had, oh, okay. is in the basement all the time. So he was a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah, uh, and in a way it transferred to his music because yeah. he was like a mad scientist uh, right. of music too. When he, uh, so I didn't, make a long story short, I didn't really hear him play. We would play when we were kids in, in the bathroom because we liked the echo. Right, <laughs> and we would make stuff up. Yeah. I, we did a tribute to that when I did my first record, which was called Score in 1969. Right, we did a tune called The Weasel Goes Out to Lunch Duo. We did Pop Goes the Weasel, and, and it's actually kind of cute. And yeah. we played free and, and uh bounced off each other. That's right. what we would do in the uh in the in our bathroom because we like the echo. But as far as hearing him develop. You know, he stuck with with clarinet. I went off to Indiana University, started to study with Dave Baker, and I would send him my lessons. He was in ninth grade then. Mm-hmm. And uh, by then he had discovered cannonball. So in ninth yeah. grade, he, he switched to alto. Mark Copeland, who was then Mark Cohen, was also a fine alto player who went on to play with Chico Hamilton. They they moved to New York around the same time. Now it's a great piano player. Right. But they would practice together. Tenth grade, now I wasn't around because I was at IU and, and going to different places during the summer. I didn't hear him play. Uh, I was in town once and I heard uh, briefly, but it didn't impress me that much, Mark Mike playing with Billy Paul, the singer who right, yeah. was at that time typically was a jazz singer playing in a small club before me and Mrs. Jones, yeah. with Eric Rivat on drums. They had a group, uh, but they were playing uh, kind of bebop. Mike was still learning. Yeah. Was, but uh, in 1968, I'll never forget this. I was playing in Chicago with Hard Silver Quintet with Billy Cobham, John B. Williams, yeah. and... Benny Maupin, and we were playing at the Plug Nickel, and by then Mike had gone to Indiana University and had started a band with a great trumpeter, Chicago trumpeter Randy Sankey. People get, think of, uh, I was in this band because of the Randy, but it was actually Randy Sankey and a, and a, a, a group of fine musicians that could play anything. Yeah. It was called Mrs. Seaman Sound Band. <laughs> and they were heavy hippie beatnik period you know they right, were farther right. out than me we were wearing suits because i was with horace but they were rooming down the street from the club and i brought billy and benny over to uh hear them because i hadn't really heard them mm-hmm. we kind of had a jam session and man that's the first time i really heard my brother where he yeah, had synthesized as an adult uh, and yeah yeah, as a as an adult, and still was kind of an uncut diamond, but he had already synthesized King Curtis and Junior Walker and Coltrane. Right, he was already. Yeah, you hear you, like you hear that. Yeah, you hear that in his playing. Record and our jaws dropped. You know, the whole band was great. Randy Sankey was fully developed as an artist. He played wow. just great trumpet. The tunes were great. Uh, uh, interesting story with them, Mrs. Seaman Sound Band. They made downbeat that year because. Uh, at the Notre Dame Jazz Festival, which was, that's where we all went in college to, to achieve notoriety, success, and it was a great competition. Mm-hmm. And they were far and away the best band, and they made it into the finals. 
but they played a jazz rock version of Light My Fire or something to that effect, and they were disqualified for playing jazz rock. I think uh, it was How dare you. Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Nelson and, and uh, yeah, yeah. the judges just didn't think uh, it fit. as a, So they were disqualified and they downbeat, band disqualified. How funny. But they were, they were great. And that's the first time I heard Mike play, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, and uh, as a result of that meeting, I had him play on my first record score. I think he had either just moved to New York; he was nineteen, right? Had uh, not played much in New York, so imagine his uh, yeah his fright level. But he sounded great <laughs> exactly. on the record. <laughs> that's the thing too, a, because you had all your players. You have such a long list of amazing players that have played on your records, right? Yeah. So, uh, and that was really what's started it and then we both play started playing together a lot we had kind of a sixth sense our sound kind of matched it uh, we had certain nuances and ways to play vibrato and grace notes that we didn't have to talk about right so we started working a lot together in the studios along with Sanborn mm -hmm. and uh, what became the core of the Brecker Brothers band because Sanborn also kind of had a lot of the same uh yeah, same vibe. Uh, ideas or the same influence. So we were, uh, you know, we fit together really well, along with the trombonist Barry Rogers and, and usually uh, Ronnie Cuber. Right. The five of us work really together. We could jam anything up and make it really soulful and mm -hmm. whatever they wanted. So that was a. Yeah, they, they call it time. like when the, the, the it's quite a, like the blood harmony when two singers, brother, yeah, sister, yeah. mom, and daughter, like, so that's the same thing, right? Yeah, you can't, that's in your soul. You can't teach that. You're born with it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's true, man. We didn't have to teach it or talk about it. It was just, wow, man, this yeah. is special. Yeah, and you hear that. I mean, you hear that on the records. And, and, and I, what, speaking of like doing those records, who are some of the guys that really stick out with to you as far as players, guys that were your kind of go-to guys? I know it's a long list of people. But. Oh, yeah, probably too long of a list. But I think uh, the ones that stand out the most off the top of my head was uh, Antigia Music, which was owned by Ralph McDonald. And he had also played on my first Brecker Brothers record, Percussion. Right. We had done an amazing amount of sessions together under different circumstances. But his core band at his studio, he had done very well as a songwriter, mm -hmm. writing for Roberta Flack right. uh, and others with Bill Salter. Uh, and his band, what can you say? Richard T., Bernard Purdy, Eric Gale. Yeah. <laughs> and the like. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of a dream uh, band, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was Aretha's band. Yeah. So we loved playing with uh, Cornell Dupree, of course. And, yeah. And other guys came uh, uh, grover did a lot of sessions there mm -hmm. so and it was just great we did a million sessions together purdy would set up the sign and said call pretty purdy with his phone <laughs> yeah. number but you know so what, what he, he, he could back it up <laughs> oh he sure could back it up yeah but there were a lot of other little clicks that we played with uh uh it was a guy named tony camillo who did a lot of records for casablanca right. that was a different horn section mike usually wasn't in that one with me alan rubin george young miko minardo on trombone and and uh, lou delgado on baritone he kind of was the section leader and then miko had a brilliant idea so he thought to do star wars disco <laughs> and we've kind of poo-pooed it because every week engineers were coming up to us you know top secret next week yeah, yeah. being from star trek <laughs> Disco, don't yeah. tell anyone. Yeah, right. Next studio, look. <laughs> Next week, don't tell anyone. Top secret. I love Lucy. Disco. Right. 
So, <laughs> so Miko in the middle of this has the idea. I'm going to do a theme from Star Wars. We were kind of poo-pooing it, laughing about it because it was part of our horn section. But, you know, we went into a big studio in New York. Howard uh, Wheeler wrote the chart, got the best guys in New York. Eddie Daniels played a little clarinet solo in the bar scene and they sped it up an octave. So it sounded like munchkins. And that record was number one for weeks, mm. number one for weeks. And yeah. we never saw Miko again. He just took <laughs> he off. Just, you know? He took over. He just had his money. <laughs> yeah. That was the end of his trombone career. Right. Yeah. You just never know. Cause there were so many sessions going on. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is too, that, I mean, that was, even though, like you said, the disco thing and all that, but that, that being the Philly and New York and those, in that time period, there's so much music happening. Right. And, and oh, a lot yeah, of great music. Yeah. yeah. A lot of great music with the jazz. What can you say? You know, there were so many great tenor players going back to that Billy Root, my, uh, the late Billy Root, who was, uh, played with Dizzy's big band. And, 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 uh, that was probably his, the most fun he had, but also Stan Kenton's band and was right. really on the scene mentioned once that there were more tenor players in Philadelphia than on the entire West coast. And, and it was not, it was true. There were the yeah. guys that stayed there and there's just as a host, Benny Golson, John Coltrane, yeah. Jimmy Heath. You just go on and on. I made a list once Larry, uh, uh, who's still there. Uh, can't think of his last name now, but, and, and guys that never left and, and Coltrane and Dizzy lived there for several years, but Coltrane had a big influence, his whole attitude on, yeah. on the scene. And it was always jazz happening, local jazz too. Yeah. And I think that that, I mean, with that, th those level of players, it just forces everybody to up their game. Right. Cause if you're going to oh, be, yeah. if you're going to be a working guy and you just, you're going hearing these amazing players from even from different, I mean, from different countries in New York, you got all the guys from Puerto Rico, you got yeah. that Cuban, like all those influences are getting a big mix, right? Very true. And like I said, the, there there was a lot of uh, festivals, local festivals. Cats would come out and play. Mickey Roker, Bobby Durham. You know, there were so many great drummers. Yeah. Uh, of course, the whole B3 organ right. history started in Philly. So every year there was a B3, you know. Uh, uh, kind of battle, I would play. Uh, <laughs> battle of the by, Yeah. <laughs> and that was th always a thrill. And whenever I went back to Philly, I'd talk myself into thinking, well, these guys, you know, I, they sounded great, but I was a kid. They can't be that good. Yeah. You know, Bootsy Barnes, uh, you know, I'd go play. Man, they were all fantastic. Yeah. You yeah, know, it's so just, much talent. It's amazing. I mean, that's, and, you uh, know, I, I played with Billy Preston way back when, and Billy did Amazing Grace by himself. And I just yeah. sat there and just like, oh my god, I just chills. That's such a cool instrument. That B three yeah. grabs your it grabs your soul. <laughs> you know, yeah. very true. Yeah. So I was very proud to you know to say that I'm from Philly, and I think I, it's it's funny. Uh, you know, whenever I do go back there and and play, it still feels like home out the way that right. that is, and see some old friends. My friend Terrell Stafford started uh, several years ago the philadelphia uh jazz orchestra mm -hmm. so every once in a while i uh, go back and 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 play with them or yeah that's awesome they do some of my music it's great just 
brings back so many memories. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the, those things that just stays with you the rest of your life, right? That gets into your music and your soul, the food, the whole, just the whole thing. It's oh, just, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure it does. Yeah. Um, what, what have you been doing recently? I know you've been writing, like you mentioned, and then are, are you recording any of your own albums coming out? Or what? what's your plan? Well, I don't have anything. Uh, I have a couple ideas, but I, I think the next thing without getting too specific, because it's just, formulating in my head i just wanted i haven't done a lot of uh really kind of blowing sessions mm -hmm. uh, so i'd like to do some kind of quartet record and i have yeah. one idea to make it a tribute to some person who i think is well deserving and and i'm not sure who i'm going to call yet but that seems to be the general idea i've done a lot of records where i've written all the music right and this one i think i'd like to be a little looser maybe find some tunes that uh people don't play and really make a jazz record because the last uh, few records have all been, uh, well, not small groups. I've done a lot of records with uh, big bands recently, uh, Europe, uh, European radio bands. Right. In fact, I had, uh, which are, which some of those are just amazing groups. Oh, they're all, yeah, I did uh, one with, I had to make a list actually acting during COVID and during 2019, in a way, it was sadly a lot of records that I had been working on with various uh, different parties became due. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were released around the same time. So I had close to 10 albums right. out around the same time within a year, which is way too many, uh, <laughs> as you well hey, know. But you know, you're a working guy, so <laughs> yeah. it's good. <laughs> well, and then COVID hit, and uh, we were supposed to do a bunch of tours with various sure and then that all uh Dissipated. stopped for the last yeah. and i had so i think the uh common uh uh rejoinder is i used to be a million seller now i have a million in my cellar <laughs> as far as cds <laughs> right yeah uh, uh was supposed to do a tour with sanborn and uh, mm. I, uh, 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 a brecker brothers record from 1980 seven or 77 was was released to two out two uh, hadn't been released previously oh, okay. came out, so we ordered a bunch to, uh, uh, i heard a thump 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 on our front porch and uh we had ordered a thousand records and then the tour was canceled so they're in my basement <laughs> so now you're having a sale <laughs> yeah a two, for, two for one <laughs> but literally i had uh, to mention some of them I, I I printed out this thing. I did a. Some of them were not reissues. They hadn't been released before, and they were all right. good. But they're all within a year. Uh, it was Randy Brecker Quintet Live at Sweet Basil, which was also a DVD CD. Okay. With Bob Berg, with my band at the time, right. that was great to have out. Thirty three years later, it took. That's but awesome. that came out. Hey, you know what? The music yeah, music's still good. <laughs> yeah, and Berg was playing great, and we're doing all original compositions of mine at the time. Mm -hmm. This was 1989. Oh, okay. And shortly after that, I, I did a big band record with the Umo Jazz Orchestra mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Helsinki. Right. Arranged and composed by a guy named Matt Holmquist. That came out about a month later. That's called Together. Awesome. And then... Uh, I had been working on this for months. Randy Brecker with the NDR big band that came out yep. called Rocks, where they do all my tunes from different periods. Awesome. This is all from month to month. And yeah, I yeah. Going, but you know, that's oh, all stellar, God. stellar music and, and great. Uh, Let's see. And Brecker Brothers live and released. Let's see. I got it here from 1982. <laughs> 
CD set. And then a project I had been more proactive with than I had been planning on is called Record Plays Rovati. Okay. My wife, Ada Rovati, wrote all the music awesome. for this one, and I kind of co-produced it, put the band together, and, mm. and it came out really, really nice project. So that came out a couple months later. <laughs> and uh, after all these kind of cleared up a little, and this was taking it right into when COVID started, we had been working on a project with Eric Marienthal, the great yeah. alto saxophone. Right. And that eventually came out as double dealing, but we had to do that or really separately because this was in the middle of COVID. Right. And he was in LA. I had planned to go out there, and but we did it uh, with George Whitty producing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of still, I think they're going to re-release it. Uh, they kind of half release it, but it did pretty well at radio. Yeah. And I thought at the time that was going to be it. But unbeknownst to me, I had done a record with, and this is more of a neo-free jazz record with Dave Liebman and Mark Copeland and oh, okay. other Joey Barron, right. uh, Drew Gress, really in the studio together right before COVID hit. And that came out called Quintet. Yeah. And then a record recorded. You believe all this? This is all the same year. Hey, you know what? It's good to be busy. (laughs) So a record came out, two CD set that I had recorded in Copenhagen with the great Bernard Purdy, who's still playing his ass off. Great Danish musicians and a famous Danish alto saxophone named, his name is Benjamin Koppel. So then that came out. And then if that wasn't enough, just a couple months ago, Hal Galper Quintet with me and Mike, Ah, Bobby Moses and Wayne Dockery live at the uh, Berlin Jazz Festival in 19, uh, I don't know if I can find that, 1977, I think. It's a really good one. We were playing a lot. Isn't it awesome that you and your brother's music, well, especially your brother too at this point, that his music lives on. I think that's a beautiful beautiful thing. It's amazing. It's great and you can see him play all the time. Just to remind myself, I go on and just watch him for a while just to remind yeah. yourself because you, you kind of forget that nobody else could do what he did right yeah yeah and i mean in, in the, yeah and just the fact that you guys are family that that's you know you can't replace that even though you yeah. obviously all these all these bands and great players great sax players but it's a, that's a special thing as we all know but um that's awesome that you're so busy i, I what you know as a player um who's done this for so long do you still get excited about touring? Excited about playing live? Is that is that? It seems like you do. You do obviously because you're so busy. Well, yeah, but now with the you know it remains to be seen. Although I think what like I said, I'm starting back in August, going to uh, the uh, uh, Berks Jazz Festival, and then from there going to Budapest. Yeah, with, you got a uh, jazz cruise coming up so, in 22. Yeah, also, right? yeah, jazz cruise which was postponed, mm-hmm. and I have work coming up, so I'm sure. Uh, you know, I've been off for so long. It's uh, I've, it's it's taken an effort. I love to play, but I I go into the studio when we're not recording, and I put on records, and I yeah. turn down the lights and just, just play hope, along. Yeah. And just play along and pretend I'm in a gig. Keep yeah. my chops up. You know, it's it's good to do things. that too because it reminds you why you first started playing, right? The love yeah, of music. Yeah, and I still get excited, you know, uh, uh, when I do that. It's still I find some good records with some swinging drummers. Yep. Jimmy Cobb and Elvin. Yeah, you know, it gets it's in your soul. You feel that still. You just yeah. just chomping at the bit to get out and play. Awesome. Uh, and I think it'll take a sec because I'm so used to being not in front of people. Right. 
uh, I've noticed it's had an effect on just uh, even when I record, uh, you know, uh, I get a little more uptight or nervous when I have to, because I'm just out of practice about as far as doing it in front sure. of a, an audience. Uh, the two times that we did it, and I think I spoke for everybody, everyone was a little, you know, trying to plant their feet firmly on the ground because it was so weird uh, trying to play in front of people. It had a yeah. spontaneity. You think, you, you know, you don't think as freely because it's uncomfortable. You realize there's people out there and you're yeah. standing on a stage. Yeah, you got to shake, you you gotta shake out the cobwebs. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure once things go back to normal, it looks like a lot of guys are going back to work now, if not yeah. July and August that, yeah, I think, yeah, and also the travel back. restrictions are going to start lightening up. And I know, I, yeah. I know you do a lot overseas too, which is, yeah. You know, so, I'm used to, I'm used to being on the road. It's for to sit at home for a year and a half is is it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a challenge, challenge. But uh, I love the sound of the trumpet, and the, uh, I mean, and I love the horn. Although sometimes I want to throw it out the window, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I think we all have that feeling. Absolutely, I, I, I'm down there pretty much every night. Yeah. Sometimes late, but I'll I'll play for a couple hours a day minimum. That's inspiring, man. I, I know. Um, cause how many decades have you been playing now? I mean, it's it's been a while. <laughs> well, uh, six. Well, six. I started when I was fifteen, and yeah. I'm seventy five. Uh, awesome. So. Yeah. Well, you 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 yeah. you're a young seventy five, and you stay busy, yeah. which I'm sure that 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 helps that. Um, but that's awesome that you look forward to playing after all these years, and I, I think that's very inspiring. You know. Well, thank you. Well, I don't know how to do anything else as part of it too. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, I'm kind of I'm at the yeah. same boat. <laughs> I'm catching up to you, kind of, kind of, sort of. Um, thank you so much, Randy. I, I really, um, and I should mention our mutual friend Jason Miles arranged this. Sure. Um, Jason wow. is a, a very well-known producer, a great guy. And um, when he mentioned um, you and your name came up, I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. I'd like to talk to Randy. So, uh, you know, you, you've kind of been omnipresent, you and your brother, the Brecker brothers is always, it's always a name that's been around and it's always stood for quality and, and amazing musicianship. And um, I think it's amazing what you've accomplished over the years. And I'm, I mean, besides being a journalist or whatever, I'm definitely a fan and I very well, much appreciate you. your time. Well, it was well done. And I enjoyed myself here. It's good. Great kind of thinking up these old memories and uh, yeah. did a good job and I'll look forward to hearing more of these uh, now that we know each other. Awesome. Thank you so much, Randy. I really appreciate it. Okay, Daryl. Thank you. Have an awesome day in the Hamptons. I'm jealous. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll um, make the best of it. Yeah, I know. You'll suffer through it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us and please consider subscribing to our podcast and follow us on our social media pages for guest announcements.